Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. We, we talk about rape, and we and obviously in that particular case, the, the, the victim remains anonymous. Uh, or should I say the man, his name is anonymous to protect the victim. But we talk about these cases on a regular basis and we hear about them in the news and we don't think about the victims. And last year, a study from Trinity College, Dublin and Maynooth University found that one in three people in Ireland experienced sexual violence with 15% of adults being raped. But waiting lists for post-trauma psychological support are up to 18 months in some services, a, a wait uh, which many people believe is completely unacceptable. Funding to sexual violence support services increased by 25% from just under 4 million in 2016 to 5 million in 2019 and 2020 in recognition of the significant increase in demand. So when we listen to, for example, you know, these people who go into jail uh, and they'll go into certain jails, they will have rehabilitation services. They will have any services they want, by the way. They'll get all the support they need, uh, the people who perpetrate these crimes. But the victims of these crimes, we forget about them the day after it's read out on the news. That's the last we kind of hear of it, isn't it? We don't hear about their lives afterwards and how that's impacted their lives. And for most of those victims, or for indeed all of those victims, uh, the trauma of rape will live with them for the rest of their life. And they need counselling and they need to talk to people. One such person, by the way, um, is Amy Barrett. And in 2017, retired soldier and her father uh, was convicted of rape and sexual assault of her and her sister. And she joins me on the line. Uh, good afternoon to you, Amy. Hi, Niall. How are you? How are you today? Firstly, because I know you're out and about today. It was in the, I saw it in the Irish Examiner and you're obviously trying to get as much attention as you possibly can and get a platform uh, to increase funding and to help, I suppose, the victims and support victims of rape and sexual assault. And this is probably all bringing this back to you. It is, I suppose, and I wouldn't like to have to relive everything all over again, but this is what I must do, you know. Mm. Um, I think it's very important that they pay more attention to victims like myself because, like, you know, when I looked up the Irish prison services and the treatment of sex offenders, and two key words just jumped out at me. They have a care plan and they are, you know, they are provided with plenty of support. Throughout their, throughout said, their sentence, throughout their sentence. And, well, and, yeah. and and we forget about, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to you, Amy, but we forget about you and your sister after that particular case. Jerry O'Keefe pleaded guilty at the Central Criminal Court to three charges of rape, five of indecent assault, one of sexual assault. There were nine sample charges out of 78 charges covering a period from yeah. January 1980 to 1987. And to remind people, and I, I, if this is really hard for you, you please tell me, Amy, and don't answer any questions that you don't want to answer. Okay. But he raped you from the age of seven uh, and he stopped before, I suppose, you reach puberty in some sense, 11 or 12 years of age. And my thinking behind that is that he didn't want you to talk about it or tell anybody about it. Yeah, I mean, he never actually told me don't say anything. Well, not that I remember anyway. I don't remember him ever threatening me to not say anything. But he was just always so kind of manipulative how he always made sure that he got my mother out of the house before he abused me. So, you know, that mm. that was just the way he did. And it was only later on in years that I found out that my sister was abused as well. You know, so we didn't even realise that, you know, when he'd finished with me, he'd moved on to her. Oh, my God. And when when was it that you first thought about this and, oh, God, what what happened to me was wrong? Of course, it was, it was wrong at the time. And you, I'm sure you had some indication, even at seven or eight years of age, that this is not right or there's something not right about this. But when... Was it later in your teenage years then that you realised, you know, that what happened to me wasn't right? Yeah, I suppose um, it was after I had my first child. I was only around 23. 
and um, again just hit a rock bottom, couldn't keep it in any longer, just needed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I called the Samaritans and they were brilliant. But, you know, the Samaritans just kind of listen to you. They listen, so, yeah. They listen. Yeah, but I, I begged them to help me. I needed help. So they referred me on then to the Ray Christ Centre in Cork. And I suppose and then, there's a reluctance, isn't there, in some sense, that when a young girl um, wants to make an accusation against her own father, does the, the battle between the love of your father, the love of a parent, who's the person who's meant to protect you from everything in the world, does that yeah. battle in your own mind, you know, about am I doing the right thing? Which, of course, yeah. you were. I was, like, and I mean, it wasn't an easy road either because, you know, Dad was still living at home at the time with Mum and my younger brother was still in the house as well. So mm -hmm. social workers would have become involved once I started speaking out a little bit. Yeah. You know? And I did even get pressure from other family members back then who at the time they didn't really understand. Do they, do they, not, be do they not believe you? They did, but it's just all they could see is, like, this is going to destroy the family if you do this. Well, no, well, yeah, but let's be clear about something, Amy. You didn't destroy the family. He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. It wasn't you that destroyed the family. And this this goes for everybody who's been the victim of any crime or any heinous crime like this. That it's, it's not you. And people tend to blame themselves. They say, like you're saying, well, if I do this, it is going to destroy the family. And, and invariably it would. And because there's so much upset and upheaval. But it's not your fault. None of that is your fault. No, but I do. I do think that there is a part of like, you know, victim blame. Definitely. Mm. You know, I remember Dad telling me, it's disgusting really, like he just said, well, you came down the stairs in your little nighty. I'm, I mean, probably like seven or eight at the time. Oh, and right. I was looking at him thinking, what? You know, I mean, I was your daughter. I was your, you know, he used to call me doll. And he, he said thing. he was more or less saying that it was your own fault for encouraging him because of the way you dressed at seven so. or eight years of age. Yeah, yeah. That was his mindset. That's what, the way he was thinking. S like, as I said in the article as well today, that I believe Dad was detached, you know, when he was abusing me. Mm -hmm. It was like he couldn't see that little girl. I know he loves me. I know he does in his own way. But this sick, do you horrible... Do you really fight. think, I mean, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to upset you, but you re how can you love somebody and do that to them? Um, I know. Um, I think Dad is very messed up. He claims to have been abused himself. So that's what he blames for the messed up thoughts that he has and the actions that he has. He blames that. He never actually got help. He started to get help years ago, but when it started to get difficult, then he, he backed down. So, so you think um, he was a very troubled person? Very, yeah. He still is. Still but that's, the, that's not an excuse for what he did under any no. circumstances. And there are a lot no. of people in this country who have been sexually abused, as you have, Amy. Uh, yeah. uh, who would never even dream of doing that to their own children. Or, no. or and for the very reason that they know the traumatic effect it's had on them would never do it to their own children. So yeah. I, I find that for him to use that as some sort of even excuse is disturbing in itself. But when you when you went to court, by the way, did he show any remorse? Not really. I think the only time I saw him get upset was when I read out my victim impact statement. Mm -hmm. Um and I think that might have been like a, a ploy on his part to just try and get a lesser sentence because Dad has always claimed that he was like the victim. Oh, I didn't do anything, you know. I mean, that you encouraged him? Yeah, maybe. I suppose I don't know what's going on in his mind. I can't mm. speak for him. But I suppose even when he went to the guards and he his first words were to the guards like, oh, well, they're two lovely girls and I don't know why they're saying that I did these horrible things. 
Whereas the guards' response was like, if they're such lovely girls, why would they make up these horrible lies? Yeah. You know? Because it was the truth. It was, we were just speaking the truth. We were just saying it as it was, and he was in total denial about what he did. To, to, the, day, to, to the day of the sentencing, he still denied yeah. it? He did up did to he, the did he, But did, did he admit that he had done something, but didn't believe that what he had done was wrong? Is that the way he kind of felt, do you think? Um, well, not really sure. Like, I know that when the first plea came in, he only pleaded guilty to the lesser charges. So that would have covered, like, Melissa's, you know, but yeah. not mine. And yeah. that was very upsetting because I would have thought that I was close to Dad, you know, and that he would understand. And when he was pushed into the corner and forced, that he would just hold his hands up. But, you know, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And in in relation, I, I don't know whether you want to talk about your mam and, and what happened there. When she found out about this, what, what was her reaction at the time? When we reported it? Yeah, when you reported it. Um, well, at the start, I suppose it was, you see, mam was like... Years ago, Mam was very quiet and very dependent on Dad. He was a very controlling person. Mm-hmm. So she would have went through her own form of abuse with him as well. Um, she knows she's made terrible mistakes by trying to cover it up, but by not doing anything years ago when she found out about it first. Um, she's sorry for that now. She recognises the wrongs she's done. And I suppose now all we can do is try and move forward and build on the relationship we have with her now. Okay. And... When he went to jail, how, I mean, is there anything, did you get to talk to him at all before he went to jail, before he was taken away? Um, not before he went to jail. No. But um, shortly after I made my statement to the guards, I did get to talk to him. I, you know, because he was only in touch with my younger brother. So I had to arrange a meeting with him through him. So I went to his house, myself and my eldest boy came with me. He was only about 16 or 17 at the time. And... I just confronted him there and I asked him, Dad, do you remember abusing me? And he just says, I do, girl. You know, like it was just so casual. It was just like, yeah, yeah, go on, tell me. And then once I start talking about the abuse, he just lost the plot, just stood up, slammed on the table and screaming at me, told me to get out of his house. He just can't face what he's done. Does it make it, does it, make it worse for you that he's not accepting what he has done is wrong. Does that make that worse for you? Um, not really, because my happiness is not dependent on that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, my focus now is on my family. Like I said to, to Liz Dunphy, there's more to me than the the girl that was abused and raped by her dad. Absolutely. You don't want to be defined by that. No, no. I am a mother, like, and I'm a wife and I'm a friend and we, no, spoke, we spoke to Jason the other night, your husband, and, yeah. and he told us how much support you needed at the time, and, and that's what I'm going to come to that that part of it in a second as well. But, you know, he got 10 years for this, and most likely will probably get out after eight. Uh, this is in 2017, so there's a possibility he could be released by, what, 2025? Is that that is that the kind of timeline you were given? Um, well, we were told 10 years, but okay. then it's actually only eight, because, you know, they get that like that 20% or something off. Yeah. Yeah. Automatically. And every time he's a good boy inside there, he gets even more time off. You know, I don't expect him to serve the full eight years, to be honest. I'd be surprised if he does. And how how is that going to work with you when he's released? Does he live far from you, by the way? Well, well, well I don't I know live, where he's going to be living when he comes out, by the way. But I mean, I know. Like, I mean, his, his partner and the child are living in Yaltown. 
and I'm kind of about three, four miles away from them. Okay. So, I mean, it probably wouldn't be wise for him to come back to y'all because I know that a lot of people in y'all were very angry at him. Yeah. Not that I would condone any kind of violence towards him because that would really upset me if anything happened to him like that. But it probably wouldn't be best for him to come back here. I don't know what his plans you've are. A, where Amy, you have a wonderful heart because I'm, I'm listening to you saying that. And I know many people out there are thinking, you know, your father raped you, sexually assaulted you from the age of seven to 11 or 12 years of age. And you were saying to me that, you know, you're not condoning any violence towards him because you'd be so upset if anything happened to him. And I understand and I completely agree with you, by the way, we don't want to condone any violence towards anybody. But yeah. for, any, for a victim like yourself to say that, it shows that you really, really have a heart, that you still, I, I sense that you still love your father. Yeah, I do. Um, I suppose that's my downfall. You know, um, I suppose some people might call it something else, say that no, he still no, no, has no. control over me, but I see it as genuine love. You know, he still is my dad. There's more to him than this. But can a dad do that to his daughter? I don't think, no. I don't know any dad that could do that to his daughter and still use the title father or dad. or Because a dad yeah. is something that we think of a person who protects us who looks after us, who provides for us, you know, and who loves us yeah. unconditionally. And, and if anybody did anything like that to us, you know, they'd put a bullet in their head. You know what I mean? So and that's what yeah. a dad is, isn't it? It is, yeah. He, I think he lost that title. I think he, that he, he lost that title the day, the day he committed a crime against you. But to get onto the support, he's got 10 years, you've got a life sentence. Yeah. Because this is something that will always be at the back of your mind, no matter how happy you look on the outside or feel on the outside or portray yourself and project yourself. You yeah. will always have this in the back of your mind. It'll, it'll come up now and again. There'll be times you'll forget about it for a while, which would be great. And that's what support is all about, dealing with that and trying to forget about it for a while. But there are going to be times, you know, in the darkness of night or peaceful times when you're staring into space where it's going to come back to you. So how do you support victims then in that sense? Or how do you believe the best way to support them is? just more help like I've been saying I mean I just don't think it's fair that you know once like they look after us so well in the court I mean it doesn't happen for every victim but for us myself and Melissa we were taken care of so well through the whole process and then after the court it was a case of like right thanks very much now go find your own way Mm -hmm. you know I mean I can turn to the Rape Christ Centre but they're like just bombarded with you know waiting lists Yep. People waiting for their services. Then there's the National Counselling Service in Ireland and the one here in Cork is Harbour House and that's 18 months. You know, it's just while Dad can walk into prison and within weeks of his committal, he is assessed and there's a care plan drawn up for him and how to take care of him and rehabilitate him. But there's not enough out here for us. The last, the last we hear of you, and, and uh, for the fact that you obviously waived your right to anonymity, anonymity, I mean, there are many victims out there who don't do that. No, and I can understand that. And there's yeah. no right or wrong in, in, you know, waiving your rights or not. It's totally the choice of the victim if they want to do that. I mean, I'm a quiet person by nature, but I felt like I've come this far now. I've spoken out about it. I'm not carrying the shame and the embarrassment of it anymore. So I wanted to tell the world, like, basically my story mm-hmm. in hopes that somebody out there can relate to it and say, well, I felt like that and, you know, maybe they can get help. That's all I want out of this is I want I want the services to be there for them because I have nothing to gain from this now myself. It's not like the government might introduce a new service and then I can gain from it. Well, funding, funding would be a start. Yes, 
I mean, I mean, I, I see the government throwing money around left, right and centre currently at the moment with COVID-19 and they're throwing money at all sorts of sectors at the moment. Uh, and some of it completely just throw, merged or throw it in the bin. But I mean, when you look at the, the funding, the funding to sexual vi- uh, violence support services increased by 25% from just under 4 million. 4 million, I know people think 4 million is a lot of money. It's nothing. 4 million no. won't pay for anything. To no, 5 million not. in 2019. But I mean, that's... It's a ridiculously low amount of money. When I, when I look at your, there's a text here from somebody who says, Helen, I'd contact the Rape Crisis Centre uh, in Dublin for help uh, after I had been raped. They told me there was a waiting list of well over a year. It was crushing yeah. to hear. Yeah. And like, I know these people that are on the other end of the phone line because I spoke to them when I rang around myself. They feel terrible having to tell a victim, I'm sorry, but you have to wait. You know, it's breaking their hearts too because these are good people in these centres. They genuinely want to help you but their hands are tied. And like you said, that funding is so small and that has to be divided out. I think it's like 60 organisations, they told me, and that includes the 16 rape crisis centres. So when you divide that 5 million out, it's nothing. It's not enough. No, they rely, they rely on private funding, basically, yeah. for people who, you know, philanthropists or anybody who wants to give them money or they have their, their fundraising days, etc., etc. So they rely on all that as well. Whereas yeah. the prison service, of course, is funded by the state and anything that the, the perpetrator, in your case, your father gets, uh, is paid for by the taxpayer. Yeah. Well, no matter what you it know, costs. And like they have funding, my point to Liz as well was that they have funding for the BBL programme, which, by the way, is a total other subject because there's a very, very small percentage of these offenders actually take part in it um, because they don't meet the criteria. But well, the only reason some of them, I believe, might take part in it is just so they can get out quicker. Yeah. You know? I don't think, I honestly, don't think these people can be rehabilitated, but I could be, maybe I could be proven wrong, I don't know. I just don't believe they can I don't, be. I don't honestly believe there's rehabilitation for a man who would rape a seven-year-old child. Yeah. I, I just don't see how that, and I remember reading research in relation to that, uh, to paedophiles before, and that, you know, there's something like 85% re-offence rate. Uh, rapists have a very high re-offence rate. That's something that's within somebody to, I mean, a, a normal person, couldn't do that to a child. Just yeah, couldn't do that to a child. You know, that's just not somebody who's a normal person. Um, what would you say to the, the victims today who are listening uh, to you and have yet maybe to go to the guards? I mean, and I say, as I said to you at the very start of this interview, you probably struggled as a teenager and as an adult when you had your child and you talked about that yourself and you kind of struggled between the fact that you've obviously told us about the love for your dad and knowing that this will turn your whole family upside down. What would you say to a, a woman that might be listening today, 20s, 30s years of age, who went through this but has said nothing to nobody because she didn't want to upset her family? What would you say to those people? I would say don't be afraid. Please come forward because you're not going to get any closure on this. I'm, like There is help out there. You know, like I mentioned Mary Crilly in the Rare Christ Centre in Cork. I mean, it was years ago when I first met her and to this day that woman is still looking out for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, there is help in that side of it. Um, and you and you had great support, you know, obviously with Jason and, and other did. other members of your own family, and which is really, really so important to have somebody to get, have your back, so to speak. Yeah, and I know that's not the case for everyone. You no. know, I know that that, it, yeah. that that it is possible, very possible, that family members will turn against. Oh, you. I, I've had I had somebody I can't remember the lady's name I had on the air going back about two years ago. Her whole family turned against her. Yeah, and whole that's family. very sad. That takes enormous strength and courage to just keep going but I would plead with them to please help themselves they deserve it like because know, the problem is when you have a larger family in your case you know obviously in your case Melissa was sexually abused as well and sexually assaulted yeah. as well but in some cases 
the father has only picked on that one child. And maybe there's a three or four other siblings and they're going, dad isn't like that. Dad would never do that. Yeah. Yeah. And they have no idea that that was going on. And dad was such a conniving person and so scheming that they would never have known. Yeah. And and then it's you're against every other sibling, uh, maybe a wife as well or a mother in that situation. And you feel you're on your own. You do. I mean, and I would have had that. You know, my younger brother was the same. He claimed that nothing happened to him. You know, and why were we doing this at the time um, when we reported it then? He was all support for us. He understood, look, we have to do this. But I suppose it made him nervous because he was the only person that was still in touch with Dad yeah. at the time. But he's not now. He stopped all contact with him. I suppose, and, look, um, I left it up to him. I didn't tell him what to do. By the way, somebody just texted in there and wanted to know, would you go and visit him in jail? I would. Yeah. And what would you what would you say to him? I mean, what I, I, I find it really hard, Amy, to understand that because I think of my own children. Uh, you know what I mean? And if anything like that happened to them, God, I would be devastated, you know. But, yeah. I mean, what would, what would you want to say to him? I mean, we know he's guilty. He's in jail for it. He sexually abused you and your sister and raped you at seven years of age. What could you say to somebody like that that would actually make things better? Well, I suppose, like I said, my happiness doesn't depend on him, you know. Mm. But I would ask him, you know, to you know, is he sorry for what he done, and maybe ask him why, what made him, what made him do that to me? Like, yeah, like I have five kids, and he doesn't know them. He's he's missed out. Like you said, he lost that title of being a father, a grandfather, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I suppose I would just ask him that. Yeah, I just want to know why. And do you see yourself having, if he does get out of jail in twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five, or whatever it happens to be, do you see yourself having any contact with him after that? That I don't know. Um, That's something you, I don't have to, know if, you have to think about. You know, I wouldn't put myself in a certain situation. If he asked to see me, then I would go and see him. But I wouldn't push myself in there, you know, trying mm-hmm. to look for something that may not just be there. Like. And and do you, do you think that would be, for from a victim's point of view, because obviously I haven't been a victim and you are, that's part of the healing process, is that to do whatever you feel is the right thing to do at the time, of course, as long as you have the right support to do that. Do you think that's yeah. part of the healing process? It is, definitely. And I know that a lot of these cases don't even make it as far as the court. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, encourage victims to not focus on that, that if they do decide to report, just take it one step at a time like we did. Because for a lot you of know? victims to go through the whole court, particularly when somebody doesn't plead guilty, to, to go through the court is just as bad as enduring the experience of being raped or sexually assaulted because you have to literally go through it all again. Yeah, all the details are read out in public in that courtroom through those barristers. But you do, you have a choice. You don't have to sit through that and listen to that. There's a brilliant service up in the court, the VSAC Victim Support at Court. And you can go up there. It's a room up at the top floor and you can have your cup of tea and they'll chat with you if you want. And so this is why the details brilliant. are being read to the jury? Yeah. You don't have to stay in the courtroom. You know, mm, I you suppose can leave. That's your you choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's your choice at the you time. Know? So there is there is support there. Like that's what I'm saying. That's my point. While yeah. you're in system, in the court and the guards and the whole process is brilliant for me. Anyway, I'm not speaking for everybody. Okay, so it's from that point of view, you would encourage other people because the, as best it possibly could. I mean, look, it's never going to be easy to go through something like that. But no. the guards, the system, the courts, you found that whole system to be as fair as it possibly could be and support you as much as they possibly could under the circumstances. It's when it all ends, it's when RT61 News runs the story and the next day you're sitting there going, right, what are they going to do for me now? Yeah. When everybody yeah, else has I forgotten have. about it. 
like I'm in touch with Fiona Doyle now as well a lot and um, Mm -hmm. she's the same. She had to go away and poke out counselling for herself. She managed to get one at a lower rate, but why should why should she have to do that? You know, I just and I was the same. It was a process for me. I had to get low cost counselling for a while myself. But why you have to get low cost counselling while the perpetrators in jail getting it for free is beyond me. Yeah. And that's my point. Exactly. You know, it's just it's not right and it's not fair. And it's time now the government do something about it. And I don't accept that there's no money because there's always money. There's always money. We, yeah. we, we've seen that in the last year. We can we can find money when we actually need it. So we, that's absolute nonsense excuse. So you're calling on the government and everybody responsible to basically make available funds for victims of crimes like this, horrendous crimes like this, and all crimes, by the way, any victims of all crimes, be it any kind of assault, sexual assault, uh, rape, or even those who may be, uh, you know, the wife or husband of somebody who's been murdered or whatever it happens to be to have some support services there available and a reasonable support service, not something that you have to wait a year to get to or to yeah. see to or to pay for in, uh, in any way, shape or form. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because okay. I think it's only right and fair that they should do that. Well, look, I think it's well said and fair play to you. And I know that um, you, know, you were, I'm looking here, the Department of Children said in the re- a reply to a parliamentary question from Fine Gael, TD, David Stanton, who has been working with you in this campaign, by the way, and fair play to him. So hopefully he'll raise that in the doll and hopefully, yeah, but obviously being the Irish Examiner, you've been on here and maybe maybe uh, getting other platforms as well, that might come about. Listen, Amy, you're a great advocate for it and uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on the air and you told your story wonderfully and thank you very much indeed for sharing that with us. All right, thanks for giving me the chance to talk anyway. All right, take care. And as Amy said, rightly, if you are or you have been a victim, um, she's encouraging other people, if you have been a victim and you believe that you've been a victim, do go to the guards. Do go to the guards, all right? And make sure that you get your case heard because indeed it's very important for the healing of that. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.